0: Thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 149, The March on Moscow, Part 3. Last time, the great defensive line stationed some 241 kilometers, or 150 miles west of Moscow, had been shattered. Shattered by Guderian of the 2nd Panzer Group to the south, by Hopner's 4th Panzer Group, to the north of him, and finally by Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group, above him, near the main road that led to Moscow. Zhukov had been recalled from Leningrad in early October to take control of the newly formed Western Front, namely the surviving armies of the former Western and Reserve Fronts, that were now trapped, but had been ordered by him to break out to the east, Meanwhile, another defensive line, this latest one, the Moschaisk line, existed more on paper than reality. Zhukov had been right when he said that almost all roads to Moscow were open. So, while the GKO readied to abandon the capital, the Stavka labored to throw every unit it could lay its hands on to the Moschaisk line. As covered last time, the 110th and 113th Rifle Divisions had already received their orders to man the line. They were now a part of the New 5th Army, which would be led by Lelushenko, and he had the unenviable task of being under the eyes of Zhukov, the Stavka, and Stalin. Everyone that mattered. Everyone who had the power of life and death over him. As for the defensive line itself, that would be under the control of Lieutenant General Artemev, the Moscow military district commander. He had already stationed along the Germans' next obstacle some troops, but even with the addition of the 110th and 13th, the line would still be too short and too thin. Also created, at least on paper, was the Moscow Reserve Front. This formation would be behind the Mosiasque line, and was truly the last line of defense. Unfortunately for the defenders, this was more a force in theory. To take on the troublesome but seemingly tireless Guderian to the south was Lieutenant General Sokolov and his 26th Army. Yet, the general had a colonel under him who had had some success in either blooding, or stalling the panzer commander previously. But could he do it again? That remained to be seen. Underneath Guderian's dash and swagger was fear, or at least respect. As he had learned as recently as October 6th, when approaching Imsensk, the opposing colonel had hidden his T-34s in the woods. He had watched the panzers go by, remembering what Zhukov had said really yelled for the last few months, hit them in their flanks. When the panzer column was halfway by, the T-34s struck. The panzers had weaker guns, thinner armor, and could not escape. Within a few hours, most of the panzers were smoking ruins. Guderian would later write, This was the first occasion on which the vast superiority of the Russian T-34 to our tanks became Plainly apparent. At the center of this growing storm that had been the defense of Moscow were the encircled men of the former Western and Reserve Fronts. Now they were all a part of the newly formed Western Front and under the command of Zhukov, with General Konev as his deputy. On late October 10th, Zhukov had ordered the men to break out to the east, specifically, General Lutkin now in local charge, would take the remainder of the 19th, 24th, and 32nd Armies and head east, while General Ermankov would take his remaining men and head southeast. Hopefully, this would cause some confusion, or at the very least make it impossible for the Germans to focus on all of the retreating men. But, as we have seen, the Germans had put up an impenetrable wall of armor, between the trapped men and Vyazma to the east. Then there was the worsening weather, which had hit in earnest just days before. The Russian soldiers started moving east. The Germans took advantage of this by reducing the size of their keel or circle. Parts of the Russian soldiery engaged parts of the German line. The latter owned a far greater majority of the firepower with the obvious results. But the Russians kept coming. Soon as the two sides were fully engaged, there seemed to be more Russian soldiers than German bullets or shells. Russian soldier after soldier fell, but the herd kept moving, which caused consternation for the Germans. Some of the Russians were getting through, but very little. Lutkin, desperate, ordered their heavier weapons to be destroyed and then ordered a change in direction, and his men started running-slash-fighting towards the northeast. This brought the fleeing men to others of the blockade that had not fired yet. Hence, they were fresh and ready. The slaughter began anew. As for some of Lukin's men of the 91st Rifle Division, in the confusion, they had not received his order, and so kept moving east And because the Germans there were so put upon, a number of them managed to get through the German lines. By some, I mean, again, a few. What evolved next were now two groups of trapped Soviet soldiers, one just shy of Vyazma to the northwest, the other to the southwest. This entire episode lasted from October 10th to the 13th. By then, all Soviet-organized attempts to break out were over. On that day, Germany announced, the enemy encircled west of Vyazma has been completely destroyed. Which, again, was mostly true. But for the remainder of October, stragglers would find their way east, mostly traveling at night and holding up during the day. As this was known to the German commanders on the ground, they spent the rest of the month looking for these men, which tied down parts of five German divisions. Yet it was deemed better to fight them while they tried to flee, rather than after they had been rearmed. To the south, the same situation roughly played out. By October 8th, per the Stavka, Ermenko's forces started retreating as some of Guderian's panzers had gotten far to their rear. The 3rd and 50th armies dashed some 50 kilometers, or 30 miles, during the night. But when light came, the Germans were hard upon them. Having a much harder time of it was Goronovsky's 13th Army, a bit further south, as it was trying to head southeast, again not allowing the Germans to focus their destructive abilities. But from the get-go, the 13th faced serious opposition. All day of the ninth, the 13th found itself stalled, or rather, was not willing to pay the price of running through a German gauntlet. Instead, it turned due south and made for salvation. This allowed a decent percentage of those men to break through the first line of German encirclement and make for a point to the south of Bryansk. As the situation to the south stood, three Soviet armies were trapped in two pockets, the 3rd and 50th in one at Dyatkovov, closer to the original line of defense, and those remaining of the 13th. But then, on October 13th, Ermenko was hit by German air fire. He had to be flown back to Moscow. Now each group would attempt to reach safety separately. Petrov's 50th Army decided on the shortest route and tried to head northeast as it was in the northern section of the southern theater. But this had been expected by the Germans who set up a respectable blockade. By the time the remaining men of the 50th made their way through the German crucible only 10% of them were left. As for the 3rd Army immediately south of the 50th It had turned north first, hoping to confuse the Germans. But the ruse failed, as the men were encircled a second time. Having no other choice, the men of the third fought off the Germans with their backs to each other, but managed to keep moving. For three days, from October 17th to the 20th, the Russians held off the attackers. That was the key to their survival. Though the vast majority of them were lost, some 13,000 men made it to safer positions. As they were exhausted and carried many of their wounded, the remains of the 3rd Army were put into a rear-guard location. Further south, Goraniansky's 13th Army had managed the first line of German fire, but found themselves encircled again. Still, the men fought on, and kept their feet moving. By the third week of October, some 10,000 men had made the hellish trek created by the Germans. With their pursuers now behind them, the survivors rested about 45 kilometers, or 27 miles, northwest of Kursk. Though the numbered survivors of the shattered three fronts were some 250,000, a relatively large number They had started off the fight with over a million men. The Western and Reserve Fronts were gone, the Bryansk Front only a shell. Or looked at with numbers, the German attack, lasting mere weeks, had taken seven of the three Front's 15 armies, 64 out of its 95 divisions, 11 of its 15 tank brigades, and 50 of its 62 attached artillery regiments, which meant 6,000 guns and 830 tanks, were lost. So, of the 250,000 survivors, those fit for duty, they were lined up again between the Germans and Moscow. Of course, many of them had lost their equipment, or it had been destroyed. But there was an ever-enlarging wall Of Soviet manpower forming. Of the 1 million men lost to the opening phase of Operation Typhoon, it is estimated that some 688,000 of them were now prisoners of the Wehrmacht. Feeding them would not be a priority of the invaders. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com As early as October 10th, the OKH believed in Typhoon's success. Certainly this opening phase. The Russians would react slowly, clumsily. The Panzers would get in behind them, and just like since late June, the enemy would be surrounded and destroyed. It would be the same here, and then the way to Moscow would be open. Whenever the Germans met Russians, the Germans won. And with that kind of thinking, those back in Berlin decided to expand the invasion into central Russia there would be an additional offensive to the northeast of Army Group Center to incorporate. This would not only help secure the group's left flank, but would assist Army Group North as it was fighting to hold on to the Moscow-Leningrad rail lines. Panzer Group 3, now under General Reinhardt, Hoth had been ordered to take command of an army in Army Group South, would advance to the northeast from their current position near Vyazma, and capture Kalinin, Torzak, and Vishny Volochek, on their way to joining up with Army Group North's forces that would be coming south from Choduvo. Once those forces met up, the rail line between the two major cities would be in German hands, which negated the importance of who controlled either end. Coming along with the 3rd Panzer Group would be, after a short delay, Strauss's Ninth Army. Once contact was made with Army Group North, this combined force would turn south and head towards Moscow. This attack would demand that the Russians expand their defensive ring, which would hopefully leave them too thin. This movement would be repeated to the south of Moscow, by Guderian's panzers and General Weeks' 2nd Army. And coming east, right at Moscow, would be Hoppner's 4th Panzer Group, along with Kluge's 4th Army. Altogether, these would form three hammers, raining blows down on the Soviet defenders. And when they broke, as they had always broken before, not only would the city fall, but there would truly be a vacuum of Soviet forces of any substance in the area, for thousands of kilometers. As the Germans planned, the Russians reacted. The GKO, as it had before Leningrad, ordered defenses to be built along the roads to the city. The same was being done in front of other nearby cities, Kalinin, Arjev, Moshiansk, Tula, Kolonna, and Kashira, to the north and south of the capital. The NKVD had almost 6,000 men, plus what it borrowed from local defenders, to organize this work. Again, like at Leningrad, hundreds of thousands of civilians were put to work, digging tank obstacles, building defensive works. They were given 20 days to complete their tasks. While this was going on, the government officials were continuing on with their plans to destroy some 1,100 industrial, educational, and administrative centers. This had been on October 8th. A week later, all of those of the government that mattered were being told to evacuate to the East. But in order to get anything done, everyone had to remain calm, at least on the outside. Extreme measures and punishments were passed. Everyone was watched, and so got on with their work. What they were thinking was kept to themselves. On October 10th, the 3rd Panzer Group under Reinhardt had started on its northeasterly advance, but right away it ran into the stubborn 22nd and 29th Armies of Major General Yushkevich and Lieutenant General Maslenikov, respectively. However, as it was impossible for the Russians to defeat this Panzer Group The two Soviet armies withdrew, in good order, to the Arjev-Miasma defensive line. After everything that had happened, it was deemed best to allow these two armies to live to fight another day. With them out of the way, Reinhardt zoomed to the northeast. As for the main hammer coming from the due west, the Germans knew it was important to keep the pressure on so headed out by the second week of October. Sure enough, as Zhukov had stated, there wasn't much in the way of opposition. By October 12th, the SS Reich division had taken Gizhetsk, east of Vyazma, and was on their way to the Mosziesk line, where what little defense the Russians had waited for them. To the immediate north and south, other German units, were on the move. The 36th Motorized Division took Pogorlia, just north of the main road. The Lur brigade took Zupstov to the south of it. The 1st Panzer Division had already taken Arjev and Staritsa and was now moving onto Kalinin, further north. Per the German plan, soon their attack would be so wide, the Russians wouldn't know where to defend, which units were the decoys, Where was the main assault coming from? How would the Russians stop a repeat performance of what had just occurred in early October? The Germans were hoping, at least, that they would be on the city's doorstep before any answers could be obtained. With this groundwork done for the next phase of moving towards Moscow, there was now a 80-kilometer or 48-mile-wide tear in the already thin defensive line. That existed, again, mostly on paper, between Zapstov to the south and Gizhansk along the main road. In between these two was mostly grassland. On October 14th, Kalinin to the north fell to Reinhardt's panzers. Again, the Russians could only react. Zhukov and the got flew into activity the general had the right wing of his front move north of the Volga River, near Kalinin. Yes, the Germans had taken the city, but the attackers weren't going any further north. Not if he could help it. But defense was never good enough for Zhukov. He had also ordered his deputy, Konev, to personally visit the area just east of Kalinin and organize a force from somewhere to counterattack at Kalinin. The city was the beginning of the Russians losing this phase of the war. To the north, something had to change. And the Stavka was preparing the hammer Konev would use. From the northwestern front, Vatutin, the, the northwestern front's chief of staff, was ordered to put together a force. Soon the man had brought together two rifle and two cavalry divisions, one motorcycle regiment, and one tank brigade. When this was done, it was launched at the Germans at Kalinin. The two sides slugged it out from October 15th to the 29th, this time with the Russians attacking a city and the Germans defending it. In the end, German coordination won out by being able to focus reserve forces at key locations as the line seemed about to break. Yet, though the Germans had won, their hopes of advancing east in this area were over, for now. Just two days into this fighting, Konev had been put in charge, and he gave it his all, knowing that Zhukov, Stalin, and the Stavka were watching him. But the Germans held their own. By October 24th, the Kiel or encircled Russian troops at Vyazma had been captured or killed. The hunt for stragglers had come to an end. With this over and the fighting raging at Kalinin, the Ninth Army rushed northeast to help the defending Germans there. The idea was that, with reinforcements, they could restart the drive beyond Kalinin which would take pressure off of the city defenders. But that did not play out, as the desperate Konev, at the same time, had been given command of the 22nd, 29th, 30th, 31st armies and the formation put together by Vatutin. This was enough to halt the Germans after seven days of separate fighting, of trying to break out. There, the front settled down. Call, dot or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As Kluge's 4th Army was at full strength, his infantry and Hopner's 4th Panzer, it began to move along the main road towards Moscow on October 10th. This was after the Russians at Vyazma were contained, but not yet destroyed or captured. But why wait? The idea had been to break up and encircle the Russian line. And that was done. So, it was time to continue on with Operation Typhoon. And before the Germans, waiting along the Mosiasque line, was the pitiful Russian response. Throwing together forces, not nearly enough, and no one was covering either one of their flanks.